Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. I begin. Um, I want to thank you all for being here. Um, it's a great honor. I know you could do a lot of different things tonight, and you decided to come and hear me. I don't know why, right? Um, so thank you. Um, and uh, a major thank you to Rabbi Yankulowitz for inviting me to speak here. Um, I really feel like, uh, you know, I, I, I've reached a special status that I could say that I've spoken in his shul in the Valley Beit Medrash, and now it doubles as a Chai Temple too, right? <laughs> Great, two and one. I think tonight was actually the first time I met, I met the rabbi. Um, we, we weren't sure, we were discussing it before. But um, I, I really feel like I've known him for some time. I followed his work, and I think I know he followed mine as well um, from afar. And um, also, Uri Litzedek is very active, or was more active in New York, where I am from. Um, and uh, you know, Rabbi Shmuley is, is a bit of a role model for me. Because um, you know he's a true fighter for human for human rights, uh, social justice, justice for all, and um, unlike some other rabbis, he doesn't just give sermons um, and let others do the work. Right? He rolls up his sleeves and gets his hands dirty um, when necessary. He knows the value of using darche noam, right? Like pleasant uh, means to achieve goals, but he doesn't shy away from resorting to protests and <laughs> breaking down people's doors. Um, when, when that is uh, needed to achieve justice. So um, you're truly, you are all truly lucky to have uh, Rabbi Shmuley as your rabbi. So I'm going to speak tonight about um, what led me to start this organization and uh, what the problem is that we're trying to address and what we are doing about it, the resistance we're facing, and how we're overcoming that resistance, and finally why people all the way in Arizona um, should care and, and what they could do to help. So um, before I go any further, I figured I'd just go around the room and ask um, how many of you or who of you is already familiar with this uh, topic? Everyone, almost. Some of you halfway, only lifted the hands like, so I guess I, that, that's perfect. So to some of you, it'll be like a complete um, chazara, re repetition, um, but, and to others, we'll, we'll learn more. I, I do think that there's a value in hearing it I don't mean to brag, not hearing it from me, but hearing it from people who've experienced it um, because, because I often sit with people who assume that they know, they understand the issue and everything, and then they're like, wow, that's, I did not realize how bad things are, stuff like that. So um, hopefully everyone will gain something out of this. So I grew up in Borough Park. It's a Hasidic neighborhood in Brooklyn, New York, um, and uh, I'm the middle child of a family of 17 kids. Uh, my family belongs to the Hasidic sect called Bells, and uh, I went to Bells Yeshivas um, my entire life, from when I was two and a half years old till I was 20. 
When I was 20, I began being interested in pursuing a degree in psychology. Uh, the idea was uh, strange and foreign to a Hasidic boy. You're not going to find a lot of Hasidic psychologists or doctors or lawyers. Um, and, and looking back, I, I honestly I had no idea what I was in for, what kind of investment this you know, required in terms of time, money, and, and everything. Um, I had no idea what the prerequisites are, um, what, what an SAT means, and so forth. In fact, I didn't even know what a high school diploma was, what a GED was. Uh, or words like what semester, credit, GPA, essay, molecule, algebra, and organism was. I, I didn't know any, any of that. It was completely uh, new to me. The reason for that is because I attended a Hasidic yeshiva, Hasidic boys yeshiva in Brooklyn, and the yeshiva I attended focused almost exclusively on Judaic studies. In fact, in high school, it did focus exclusively on Judaic studies. So I want to zoom into that. What exactly what was my was my education like? Again, I know for some of you it'll be repetitive, but bear with me, and then I'll get, get on to the other parts of it. So, um, so here's what, what it was like. Until I was, uh, until under the age 13, I studied Judaic studies all day long. So let's say from 9 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. This included uh, Chumash, like the Torah, Mishnayos, and Talmud. Um, in older grades, we also studied Halacha. Uh, this was all taught in Yiddish. Right? I mean, the Hebrew text was in Hebrew, but everything gets translated into Yiddish because that's what the boys speak. So this was all in Yiddish, not one word of English. Then we had secular studies at the end of the day from 3.30 p.m. to 5 p.m. Okay, officially 90 minutes of secular instructions. I think the younger grades had just one hour and the older grades had 90 minutes. Um, the secular studies consisted of just uh, basic English and arithmetic. Uh, no other subjects were taught. The, the secular studies portion of the day was also not valued. It wasn't considered uh, an important thing. Children thought of it as uh, it's profane, right? Toma, have you heard that word? It's a foy, I don't want to study uh, sec English, English. Um, and, and the teachers didn't think much differently from it. They, they, maybe they didn't say words like that, but they, they thought it was not too important. After all, the main focus in a Hasidic yeshiva is to groom every single child to grow up to be a rabbi, right? So these things are kind of like secondary. Um, you know, if you need to go to a doctor, when should you do it? Between 3.30 and 5. If you need to, you know, if you have a bar mitzvah and you leave early because, you know, you're helping to set up, when do you leave? 3.30 um, and so forth. So it, it was always the first thing to go. If there's a fast day and they finish at 1, well... Obviously, there's some Jewish studies that also gets cut off, but of course, the secular studies. This is constantly the theme, so you get the idea that kids didn't think it was too important. So, for example, if I misbehaved during Jewish studies, um, I would be kicked out of the yeshiva, perhaps. A lot of people would be disappointed. If I misbehaved during secular studies, it wasn't such a big deal. I, I was practically rewarded, you know, to be able to roam the hallway, make, do the photocopying, and stuff like that. In fact, myself, speaking of myself, I was actually the top boy during Jew Jewish studies and towards the bottom when it came to secular studies in terms of, you know, uh, behavior. Um, I'm being honest at least, right? So um, once, we were, once I was bar mitzvah, uh, so approximately the age 13, I got cut off completely from secular education. So in high school, my day extended. So I, I attended yeshiva from uh, 7 a.m. at least till 8, 8.30 p.m. Again, this depends on the specific grade. And studied exclusively Judaic studies. 
No English, no math, no science, no social studies, none of that. And of course, everything was taught in Yiddish. In addition to, in addition to the secular studies that we didn't receive, it was, it, you have to think about, we, we don't just learn in schools, right? We also learn, I mean, we don't just learn in the classroom. We learn <clears throat> in the school more broadly. We learn outside of the school, outside of the classroom. All of that was absent in, in my education, right? I did not uh, watch movies or TV or uh, listen to the radio. Um, there was no uh, um, secular newspapers or magazines that, that we were able to or allowed to read. Everything was in Yiddish and uh, highly censored. So, so that part of a uh, child's education was also uh, lacking in what I, what I had received. So my high school um, education was obviously not a traditional, you know, a high school in any traditional sense. There was no preparation for college or for any careers. So, so now, fast forward. So again, from when I was 13 years old till 20, I did not study or really speak English. Didn't uh, study any math, science, social studies. None of that existed. So now here I am. 20 years old, interested in pursuing a degree in psychology. You know, to, to some extent, I was like, you know, a fish out of, out of the water. I'm entering a building where I see, you know, signs related to SATs and GEDs and, and bursa, registrar, a semester. All these things were, were just so completely foreign to me. So um, I, I don't know if, as, as much as I would try to explain it, I don't know if it's possible really, but I hope you could for a moment try to put yourself in a situation where it's like, imagine if you forgot everything you learned as, as a child and, and you're just thrown into the world now. You know, I don't, I don't know if it's possible, but I, I think that's the case with every is issue, right? Can we really put ourselves in a, in a position of being an immigrant right now, right? Uh, I, I don't know if we can, unless we are. So, but hopefully, you know, I'm, I'm able to convey, you know, what it was like. So when this happened, I didn't even have the language um, ability or the understanding to describe what had happened to me. Basically, like the concept of, of an injustice. Uh, this also didn't exist in our, in our vocabulary. Human rights, children's rights, and so forth. It wasn't something that we had had growing up. It wasn't a topic. So in fact, I myself justified what had happened by saying, look, they're private schools. Right, that's, that's what we think of when we think of yeshivas. They could do whatever they want, right? They, they have no requirement to teach you or to prepare you to go to college. In fact, they could do whatever they want, right? There's no, at least the assumption was that there's no such, no requirements. The idea of, of like a mandatory education or the concept of, for example, of truancy, I, I had no concept of that. It didn't, it didn't exist there. So only several years later, after I did enroll in college, I fought my way in. I took some remedial courses and, and so forth. And I was able to catch up a little bit. But that's when I realized that something was, was not right. So even after all these years of being in school, I, I felt, and, and I was surrounded by average students. I did not go to an Ivy League school, um, certainly not an undergraduate uh, school. And even compared to my, to my peers in that school, um, there were these tremendous gaps in basic knowledge. Um, you know, for example, I, I delayed taking any hard sciences till I was like in, in my junior year of college. And um, so I took, the, I took biology 101, just the basics. And, and I, 
had no idea what the, you know, basic words like molecule and organism were. Not, I mean, many people don't know what a molecule looks like, right? As soon as you leave the class, you don't remember that or you don't remember what it's made up of and stuff. But, but to, to have heard the word, you know, now you're building on knowing what the word is and so forth. And, and all of that was absent. In fact, it became a joke in my um, intro to biology course, my professor. Um, if she said a word that she thought I had never heard before, so she would go, Naftuli, do you know what that is? Because, because until then, I would always raise my hand, what does this mean? You know? So it was, she was nice, at least. You know? She didn't make me feel bad, but it, it, did, it did require that. So, um, so that's when I realized that something is, is off. And, and it hit me, you know, why is it that, that I, I knew that there were laws that you're not allowed to abuse children, you're not allowed to neglect children in terms of uh, food, shelter, and clothing. Why is it that with regards to education, you could take a child and literally handicap them for life? There was something that suddenly clicked. Wow, this is what this is. You know, I'm, I'm really, to some extent, handicapped for life. So that's when I began kind of like uh, looking into it. And uh, I did some research. And I, I remember I was hooked up with a, uh, a journalist who, um, who had apparently done some of this um, some of this research already. And um, I quickly learned that, in fact, there are laws in place requiring non-public schools to provide a basic education. The exact language is it has to be at least substantially equivalent to public schools, that, that kind of education. And then the law goes into the, the details. It has to include English, math, science, social studies, and so forth. And I, I saw that, and I was, I was quite astonished. I was like, there are laws on the books, and for the past at least many decades, at least as old as I am, which is three decades, plus a little bit, um, and, and it wasn't being enforced. And I know it hasn't been enforced for, for more than that. How is, how is that possible? You know, and, and that also means that, and here I'm moving from just my personal story to, to the broader issue, that all these friends that I know and all these uh, you know, yeshiva students that I've always seen, they're all being robbed of an education in violation of New York State law. That was a whole uh, epiphany. That being said, even though I discovered that, um, I had no intention of being distracted by it. Here I am pursuing my degree in psychology. I want to become a psychologist. Or back, back then, I called it a psycholog. It's like the way you say it in Yiddish and in Hebrew. And that's what I wanted to do. So I, I didn't want to get distracted. I was certainly no activist. In fact, I was a shy kid my entire life. And so, so this is not something I had wanted to do. So, but I figured, hey, I can't just do nothing. So I began um, researching attorneys. I, I sent faxes and emails to a bunch of attorneys. I had no idea between the of the difference between being a, a litigator and this type of lawyer, that type of lawyer. I just Googled the top lawyers in New York City, and I emailed everyone. And everyone was like, oh, this is not my line of work. That's not. Finally, I landed on a, uh, on a civil rights attorney. And, um, and he's like, he didn't believe it, because he had actually worked with the Orthodox community. And, and he was like, organize a meeting. It actually looked like this. You know, bring 20, 25 yeshiva graduates, and we'll see. Anyway, he came, went around the room. The stories were practically identical. And everyone came from a different yeshiva. This was 25 kids coming from, I don't know if it was 25 different yeshivas. Maybe some of them were from the same. But basically, a, a bunch of different yeshivas, and everyone's story was almost identical, 
right? So, in fact, there is some variation. You will find some Hasidic yeshivas, and this is important to, to point out, and I'll tell you later why, that there are some Hasidic yeshivas, boys' schools, elementary and middle school, that do provide more than 90 minutes. But there are also some that provide zero minutes, even in elementary school, okay? There are some Hasidic high schools that do provide uh, the option, for example, of, of, pursue, of, of learning English and math and... and Maybe that's pretty much it. And oftentimes they'll have like a, a room downstairs where they'll allow it. But the point is, on average, and, and what, what is true for most Hasidic boys is the way I described it. 90 minutes in elementary and middle school and zero in high school. So, so after that meeting, that lawyer came over to me and said, you know, you should, you should start an organization. And I was like, eh, you know. I was reluctant because you know, I didn't want to be distracted and also because I had no idea how to run an organization. Like I had no background in this. I, didn't, I never interned for anyone. It wasn't, I came from a very different world. You know? But then I thought about something. It hit me. I said to myself, imagine if 30 years ago, someone was in my position and made the same exact calculation, right? And said, hey, I, don't want, I want to continue on with my BA in, psych my BA in psychology or a PhD in psychology, and I don't want to be distracted by this, right? So that basically could have been an opportunity for that person to do the right thing, and I, by the time I was in yeshiva, I would have gotten a, a proper education. So that was sort of like a, a turning point, an epiphany, and I said to myself, okay, I'll do it. Um, and that sort of, um, that's when I started the organization, um, and this is where I am. So, just briefly, um, my intro that the rabbi did already included a little bit about it, um, but briefly about Yafed. So we're working, um, our strategy is uh, basically top down and bottom up. I can't show it with a mic in my hand, but basically um, think about you have the government at the top, the ones who make the law and set the policy. Then you have the rabbis and Jewish and Hasidic leaders in the middle, and then you have Hasidic constituents all the way at the bottom. Our strategy is basically to, we, we're trying to get across to the rabbis, but oftentimes the rabbis and, and the leaders who are sort of in the middle, they don't experience the problems firsthand the way average people do. Why? Because Hasidic leaders, they don't have to work for a living. They don't experience poverty. Even though they're surrounded by, by constituents who are poor, there are also quite a few successful ones who support them. So Hasidic rabbis are driven around in Cadillacs and, and SUVs and all of that stuff. You know what I mean? And they have their regular home and their vacation home. The point is they're not really experiencing the, the consequences of this uh, poor education. And of course, they're not necessarily able to kind of grasp the importance of education for other reasons as well, right? Um, meaning the other benefits of, of having a good secular education. So our goal really is to get through to them. But to do so, we're going through above, getting the government to apply pressure, as well as getting people within the community to speak up. In the Hasidic world, I don't know how many of you are familiar, but if you've read any of the books by people who've left the community, you probably do have some, some idea of, of the tremendous fear. There's a lot of, um, um, what's the term where everyone has to do the same thing? Um, yeah, conformity, um, and, and really, you know, veering off and, and doing something different can, can bring a lot of negative consequences. Um, and so there's a tremendous amount of fear. But that being said, there is a level of, of awareness we could bring inside the community and getting people to kind of like feel like now they're doing it as a group. 
They're doing it as a larger group as opposed to being an individual. And, and that's what we're trying to do. So we're, we're raising awareness inside the community and empowering people to speak up. We have a few ways we do that specifically. For instance, we have um, billboards driving around on, on a truck in Hasidic neighborhoods um, promoting secular education. We have Yiddish newsletters that get mailed out to, to 20,000 Hasidic homes that talk about the importance of secular education from various perspectives. It's written by Hasidim, Hasidish men, who write for regular Yiddish mag, Hasidic Yiddish magazines and behind the scenes, you know, um, using a pen name so that no one can ever identify them, they also um, write for us, which, which just goes to show we, we have a lot of support from grassroots within the community, um, but, you know, they're afraid to speak up, so they do so, you know, behind the scenes. So that's a little bit um, about us. So, yeah, I never, I never expected this to be very easy. I come from the Hasidic community, and I know what, how the community reacts to any new ideas and to, to any, anyone, like I said before, anyone trying something new that the leaders haven't sanctioned. Just to give you an example, um, before we did billboards, we tried putting ads in Hasidic, um, magazine, Hasidic newspapers. Um, so we, we submitted some ads to some Yiddish, mag, Yiddish newspapers, and they were all turned down. We said, why? And they're like, well, who are the rabbis supporting you? Basically. They were like, we're afraid we're going to be shut down if, if we put in an ad for you, you know, we'll be shut down. So, so that's just kind of like the, the, the fear that, that you see and also how it, it affects um, the work we do. Um, but, but there's a lot, a lot more that has happened, especially in recent months. I don't know if you guys know, uh, there was uh, an Orthodox uh, newspaper that called me a rodef. Um, a rodef is a Hebrew word for someone who's pursuing you. Or, or pursuing someone to kill them. There's a Jewish law in halacha, it mean, it, it, but, it, but the implication is that if someone is a rodef, you're supposed to kill them. And uh, Yitzhak Rabin, for example, um, the Israeli prime minister, just months or maybe weeks before he was assassinated, rabbis labeled him a rodef, and sure enough, someone took it upon himself to, to assassinate him. So that's, that's one example. There's some petty stuff as well, like, you know, calling me nicknames on, on Twitter, and then uh, you have people putting up pictures of me and my wife, and um, uh, pictures of me without a yarmulke, so I'm not religious, so who am I to, to advocate uh, for the Hasidic community, for Hasidic children? Uh, someone put up um, um, a picture that had my cell phone number in it, and, and even a, a former home address. So there, there are a lot of, um, you know, the, the resistance is, is pretty uh, fierce. Um, coming from some, some members in the community. One of them happens to be a legislator in uh, county um, legislature. He's a Hasidic guy, his name is Aaron Weeder, and um, he's uh, basically leading the, the campaign to, to harass me on Twitter, for instance. Um, but, so, so that's just a, a little bit of it. Actually, just I'm remembering today I got um, a voicemail, not me, Yafed's uh, phone, system got a voicemail where the guy is cursing us to all have a Misa Mishuna. That means um, like a painful death. So this is just some of the, some of the reactions um, that come out of this. Some of them are, are a little bit more measured, I should say. For example, there are some people who say, look, um, change has to come from within, right? Or we don't want the government or outsiders to come and force um, change upon us. I mean, that sounds a little bit more, more rational. But here's the issue with that. 
as someone who, who grew up Hasidic, went to Hasidic yeshivas, and was deprived of a basic education, and I have the scars to show for it, I, I take offense when someone refers to me as an outsider. It reminds me, I, I once met with this organization in New York City, it's called Nesri, and um, they help different groups, so I don't think they do a specific, one specific mission, and they were working with a group of uh, women from Iran, and, they, and so this group was telling me that they were saying this, they were facing the same challenge, that basically, as soon as they tried to, to raise awareness and to promote more freedom for women in Iran, they were labeled as these outsiders, so we don't want to hear from you and stuff like that. So apparently it's a common, it's a common um, thing. The other claim is uh, that you know, we, don't want we don't want things to be forced on us from the outside, kind of like we can take, things, we can take care of things from, from within, you know, on our own. I don't think that really works. In fact, if you speak, there are a lot of Hasidic people who say, there's no such thing. Change simply does not come from within. It just doesn't happen. But also the concept of, we'll just take care of our own affairs. Imagine if every single community said it. Suddenly we would need no government and we would need no, no authority. Um, there's this, um, I think it's in the Mishnah, where it says, you should pray for the well-being of the government. Maybe the rabbi will help us with the exact source. It's okay if you're busy. Um, that there's a, no, it's okay, it's okay. That, um, that you should pray for the well-being of the government because if it weren't for them, uh, uh, people would eat each other alive. Something like that is the, prekeavot. vote. Yes, okay, so that's where it is. And, and I think that's, that's really what it means. You, you know, you should, be, you should pray for the well-being of the government and, and the laws that they impose because imagine if, it's not, if it weren't for them, you know, it, it would be, um, what's, what's a good word? Basically, you know, Okay, see, this is, this is why I need to argue for better education, because <laughs> I can't come up with a word. <laughs> so one of the most frustrating things are that, that, that the response from some Hasidic leaders is that they've launched this deceptive PR campaign um, <laughs> where they're trying, I mean, it's kind of like a mix, and, and that kind of betrays the, the, the whole point. So they basically argue several things. One, we do provide a proper education. Two, we don't need to provide a proper education because look at our graduates, they're all successful. Uh, you know, and then you look at the poverty rates and that doesn't match up. Uh, so there are a bunch of different things they do. But, but one in particular, for example, in recent months, they've used this one niche Hasidic boys yeshiva, it's called Hassan Saofer, that does provide a better education. Not great, according to some of the graduates, but it provides a much better education. And they've been using that in their videos on, on social media, and they've been inviting government officials to be like, hey, look, look, walk into this classroom. They're talking about molecules. Walk into that one. They're talking about essays. Yafa doesn't know what they're talking about. It's all made up. The whole thing is nonsense. And, and that's difficult because we don't have access to the Hasidic classrooms. We could tell them, go to Belz, go to Satmer, go to Babav, go to Popa, go to Vizhnitz, go to Klosenberg. Those are names of Hasidic sects, by the way. Go to those yeshivas and you'll see what we're dealing with. But, but we, we can't say, hey, come for a visit. We're going to take you there, right? Because at the door, we'll, we'll all be turned away. So that's, that's perhaps the most, the most difficult challenge um, we're facing. Um, so just recently, for instance, um, we, we had a press conference and there was this senator that showed up 
And, um, and of course, she was attacked. This, this Rockland legislator called everyone at the press conference hoodlums and stuff like that. But then the Hasidic community pressured her to come for a visit to Hassan Sofer. And sure enough, she's so impressed. She's like, great, this is, this is a wonderful education. You know? So that's one of the, the biggest challenges um, we face. And, and it's, it's particularly frustrating when you see people who, for example, are quite progressive. They're, they're open with regards to, let's say, the issue of sexual abuse in the Hasidic community. I don't know if you guys know, but that too is a major problem. Uh, and, and it used to be a lot worse where Rebbe's or like teachers for Jewish studies would often uh, do inappropriate things with um, Hasidic boys. Um, and when someone tried to do something about it, they were like, shush, shove it under the rug and so forth. But now there's more of an awareness and people understand the importance of, of uh, reporting it to the authorities and so forth. But the, this is, there's a delay. There's always a delay for people to catch up. And I think this is equally important. Obviously, the, the having sexual abuse is a lot more traumatic and to some extent probably has much uh, more uh, severe consequences. But here we're talking about something that affects practically every single Hasidic child. So on a lesser level, but still affects so many of our children. Um, so I, I, we have yet to see more people um, openly speaking up about this, uh, about this issue. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. So um, one particular example where the two overlapped there was this voice note going around last week on WhatsApp. I don't know if you guys know. It's a messenger service. Very popular in the Hasidic world, by the way, because you don't need to have an, a, a profile to be on WhatsApp. So not a, no one will know. Perhaps some will know. But not many people will know that you have internet by being on WhatsApp. So it's very popular over there. And there was this voice note going around talking about a very well-respected um, girls' school, actually, Hasidic girls' school, where apparently there was a worker over there who was being inappropriate with the girls. And, and the voice note was saying, the woman over there said, I spoke to the yeshiva, I called the school, and they said, we know about it, but there's nothing we could do because this guy knows too much. So everyone focused on like, oh my God, what do you mean there's nothing you could do? You got to fire them, and then how dare you, and all that. And, and that is true, I feel the same way. But it was interesting, no one paid attention to what they said, the reason, because he knows too much. Most of us coming from Hasidic yeshivas were not too surprised. We know what that means. They know too much. They know that the yeshiva is taking more money than they should for the lunch program, for the books, for attendance, for all these different... That's what it means that they know too much. And unfortunately, this is the case in, in so many yeshivas. There's so much... There's one thing that inspectors used to come for when we were children. They came to see if the yeshivas are actually providing free lunch, which they got a lot of federal money for. And on days that the inspectors came, we got amazing free lunch, okay? Other days, it was nothing like that. In fact, some people have reported that on days that the inspectors came, children from other yeshivas would be bussed in to their yeshivas so that they can count more heads. So apparently, they were billing the government for more. Um, but in every single yeshiva, the lunch was 10 times better than it used to be. In my yeshiva, for example, for breakfast, which was also funded, they would bring in younger grades, even though on a regular day they were never there so early for breakfast. On those days, they were all coming in to be counted. So we all understand what it means, you know, that someone knows too much. 
But this is a clear instance where you see that because this person knew too much, they also had to ignore the issue of sexual abuse in, in the yeshiva. Um, at this point, the, the guy was fired, and, and actually the yeshiva is pushing back and claiming that it wasn't true, the whole thing. We don't know. I, I've, I've heard from people that they're not surprised, uh, someone who went to that specific girls' school. So yeah, one of the um, most catastrophic results of this poor secular education is the poverty in the Hasidic community. Um, it's, this is true in almost, in practically every Hasidic community, which is primarily in Brooklyn, Rockland County, and Orange County, where, where there's Karius Joel, and, and Lakewood, New Jersey, especially in recent years. Karius Joel has been named the poorest village in the entire country by U.S. Census. Um, they are a, their population is 100% Hasidic. So you see poverty is a major issue. Now, of course, a lot of people try to say it's not because of the education, it's uh, because we have a lot of kids. And that is true to some extent. But when you just look at how much money comes into the family, the income levels, you compare Hasidic families to even Litvish families, um, which are ultra-Orthodox but not Hasidic, you see the levels are tremendously different. So, so poverty is a major issue, which also means dependence on, on government assistance, which means often causing problems with the neighbors. So take, for example, Rockland County, or a lot of people might know about East Ramapo. So over there, you feel your taxes going up based on the need. So when, when you know there are tons of people dependent on government assistance because they refuse to provide a proper education, and you're not Hasidic, you're looking at this and you're like, those are my taxes, you know? So the, the animosity in those neighbors, neighborhoods have been, going on, have been going up like crazy. Truly, I, I can't say it's causing anti-Semitism, but it's certainly bringing out a lot of that. I want to tie this into the Parsha, because usually it involves the Parsha. So um, the Torah says, Kol ish ashebo mim, mizera aharon akohen, lo yigash lahakriv es ishe Hashem, what it means is, any man among Aaron, the Cohen's offspring, who has a defect, defect shall not uh, near, sorry, shall not draw near to offer up the Lord's fire, uh, fire offering. This is a defect in him; he shall not draw near to offer up God's food. So the other day, I listened to a radio show, um, and and on the air was a guy, a man from Lakewood, New Jersey. And he was talking about his program that he has for adult men, Orthodox men, to help them learn a vocation. And he was saying that the Hasidic, some Hasidic men are so ill-prepared that he has to turn them away. This is a program that helps people who are ill-prepared, but they are so ill-prepared that he has to turn them away. And, and the radio host, I think it's now a podcast, the, guy, the host's name is uh, Rabbi David Lichtenstein. Really well-renowned, uh, mostly for his wealth, actually, but also because he's a rabbi. Um, he said something like, "Wow, this is this level of educational deprivation is similar to chopping off a person's limb." And and I heard it, and I was like, "Wow, that I I often can't bring myself to say it, but to some extent, it's true, and it's it's the the effects and the handicap really stays with you for life." So so that. How can we allow this to happen to so many Jewish children who have to serve God and the people? So it's time really to declare that you know, Jewish children should all get uh, basic secular education. 
Um, now, why is this relevant to Jews in Arizona? Uh, I think some of it I've kind of like alluded to, but in general, um, we know the concept of Kol Yisrael Arevim Zelazeh, which means all Jews are uh, responsible uh, for one another. So that's kind of like on a, on a meta level, but also on a more practical level, what, what does it mean for the Jewish people when uh, the fastest growing population amongst us is um, also the least educated and, and has high rates of poverty and dependence on government assistance? In, in a decade or so, that's what the face of Judaism is going to be like. So that really does affect every single one of us and every single one of you in the room, I think, and really all Jewish people around the world. So the question then is, uh, what can you do, right? Unless some of you are from New are, live in New York and just came here to hear me. I don't think that's the case, right? So what can you do all the way out in Arizona? Um, so there's actually a lot that, that people everywhere could, could really do. Um, the main thing is obviously just awareness. I mean, I think now you, you have a better idea of how bad the issue is. Um, being able to, to talk to your friends, colleagues, family members, this is, you know, the snowballing effect. You know, that's how people learn. Um, so, for example, you don't need to live in New York or you don't need to be Hasidic to write an op-ed for really any newspaper on, on this topic to, to speak up just as a Jewish person or, or if any of you are lawyers, you know, why, why you think this is so important. Um, you don't need to live in New York to urge your friends and colleagues to support Yafed. Um, you don't need to live in New York to like us on Facebook and to promote, you know, to share and, and stuff like that. So, um, and, and even if you can, for example, attend um, events in person, protests, uh, hearings, uh, forums, and stuff like that, you could certainly share those things with your friends and colleagues who do live in New York or in the neighborhood. Um, and you don't, you don't need to live in New York to help us with some of the concrete stuff that we often need, such as um, editing, uh, video editing, design, graphic design, um, and so forth. So anyway, so these are just a fraction of the things. I was actually curious to hear if any of you, during Q&A, if any of you have more ideas on how you, know, you could be helpful. Um, so with that, I want to thank you all again for being here. Um, I, it really means a lot to me. And uh, hopefully with your help and everyone's help, we'll be able to ensure a proper, full, secular education alongside a Jewish education um, to all Jewish kids. Thank you. By the way, I think I'm much better during Q&A, so <laughs> I, I do forget things, and I don't like to constantly read out of the paper, so I actually skip things sometimes. Um, successes. We've been extremely successful with the raising awareness part, and, and raising awareness involves um, several different groups, right? We're dealing with, I, I typically break it down in three groups. You have the um, general population, Orthodox Jews and Hasidic Jews. We've actually done a very good job in, on all three in terms of awareness. And for example, our, there was a brief time, a brief period a few months ago that I was considering running for New York Senate. And the Jewish Daily Forward did an article about that. And they said, I don't mean to brag, I'm just trying to bring out why, you know, why I think we were successful on that front. He said, um, Naftali Moster has single-handedly made the issue of education in yeshivas a New York City issue. 
Um, and to some extent, and now it's actually a New York State issue in recent months. So, so there's a, a whole new level of awareness. And we've achieved it through different w ways. Some of it involves um, earned media, which basically means they have a reason to report about us. So they just write about it. But um, we've also put in media. So for example, we write op-eds or get other people to write op-eds, including everyone in this room is going to have to write an op-ed. Um, so things like that um, that have um, earned us media. In the Jewish community as well, I mean, first of all, I do these presentations around um, New York City, New York State, um, and, and again, lots of Jewish media coverage. And then we have the billboard in the Hasidic community. We have the newsletters um, go, being mailed. I don't know if you were here when I mentioned that. We mail 20,000 uh, newsletters to Hasidic homes. Um, we would like to do more, but limited funding. Um, so, so we've definitely achieved that. And, and I'm very looped into Hasidic, the Hasidic community, including to the Hasidic WhatsApp groups. And this is like the number one topic, education. And, and a lot of people are anti-Yafed. It's very hard for Hasidic people to actually be fully on board. But there are quite a few that are. But even those that are anti, they are very pro-education now. That's, that's what we achieved. Everyone suddenly is talking about how they're right, they're right, but this guy is wrong. You know, the messenger is wrong, but the issue is right. So, so if, in the end, if what we will achieve is get people from within the community to come together and start Yafed 2.0 or, or something like that, by all means, that'll be a major success. And, and we're actually helping, that, helping facilitate that um, by bringing together people who reach out to us independently, secretively, um, and we're helping them come together and to not be so afraid. You have no idea how terrified some people are. Two people, both of them are super outspoken using their um, pseudonyms on Facebook and elsewhere. They, they, I think they know about each other, but not that each of them supports Yafed. <laughs> and they're terrified of me making that shidduch, that match. There's a, there's a lot of fear um, surrounding these issues. So, but anyway, generally speaking, in terms of awareness, lots of success. Um, but in terms of actual changes in the, in the yeshiva system, not so much systemic, uh, measurable, objective changes. But here's one. Some yeshivas, they used to begin teaching secular education. I know I painted a blanket picture that yeshivas teach secular education in elementary school. It's not really true because many of them begin in third grade. Almost all of them begin in second grade, meaning not from the beginning. First, they teach you the, the Aleph Bays, you know, that comes first, and then secular studies. So, but what we do know is some yeshivas they used to teach, they used to begin in third grade, now begin in second grade. Many other yeshivas are taking the 90 minutes that they always had, they're now taking that 10 times more seriously. And I know this, for example, from someone who's a close friend of mine. And he sits on some sort of like advisory panel um, on one of the yeshivas. Um, but that's aside the fact. He had kids in, those yeshiva, in, the, in that specific yeshiva. And he says he sees the tremendous difference between his older boy who's already going, you know, getting married and stuff and his younger boy who's still going through the yeshiva system. And he's coming home. He's like, he's reading English. Tears in my eyes. I'm like, so he's so happy. So, so the, there have been those changes. The question is, is it 100% attributable to us? That's the part I don't know. Because the, the yeshivas certainly don't come out and give us credit. <laughs> they, they would absolutely do the opposite. But again, sh the short answer is yes. I, I believe we've been quite successful. I think it's important to differentiate between the 
with Hasidic yeshiva and Orthodox yeshiva. I also grew up in New York and attended a yeshiva from first grade through high school through yeshiva university. And the schools prided themselves on the excellence of their secular education in accordance and in conjunction with studying Talmud, Chumash Rashi, Hebrew literature. And our schools were among the top private schools that scored highest in Regency, state Regency scholarships. So everything you say about the Hasidim <laughs> Yeah. It's fine, but there are several yeshiva in yep. New York and Brooklyn that don't have that picture right. that you painted. And we know there are several well-known rabbis, Schmierz and Salvation, who had advanced degrees. Right. And Salvation's brother was a PhD in chemistry. Oh, yeah. and why you so um, it's important to, to highlight that yeah it's a very good point it's actually several points that you made um, as far as um, sticking to the to the Hasidic community I think I know in my notes at least very clear I'm talking about Hasidic boys yeshivas I always make sure because there are actually people in the Hasidic community who try to do the opposite. They've been part of their PR campaign, actually. They've put in several op-eds recently in um, prominent newspapers in, in New York, including the Wall Street Journal, and they conflate it. So they'll go, there are, I think they say something like, there are 210,000 um, children attending Jewish schools in New York. Um, who, why is... What are you talking about? Some of our schools are the best. And we're like, yeah, we know. We know. No, you don't need to tell me that Ramaz is one of the best schools, Solomon Shechler. We know. Trust me. I just wish our schools would be like them. And I actually think that there's a responsibility on people who've attended those schools or, or the leaders of those schools to say, stop lumping us together. Not to us, because we're not, but to the, the Hasidic leaders who are purposely doing that, I, I would love to send you actually those links because it's, it's glaring how they're, like literally the first paragraph or the second paragraph where they talk about the 210,000 children attending Jewish schools as if that's what we're talking about. We've always been super clear and when, and when reporters ask us for numbers, we give them numbers based on studies done by, but there's a Jewish foundation, it's called the Avichai Foundation, they've done like a census of Jewish day schools, and we give them the numbers based on that. Always super, super specific. But it's funny because, and I guess the PR from the other side is working to some extent. Um, like just last week or two weeks ago, some, someone from the five towns, do you guys know what the five towns is? It's somewhere in New York. What? No. Yes, exactly. So Long, Long Island. Someone, <laughs> so someone from Five Towns wrote an op-ed or, or some letter to the editor saying like, what are you talking about? Both of my sons went to yeshivas, using the word yeshivas, 
And, and one is a doctor and one is a lawyer, something like that, typical. I mean, obviously, they're Jewish and they went to good yeshivas, of course. So, yeah, so I think there needs to be more of the counterpoint to say, we know that this could be the case. And when you mentioned that all these rabbis and, in general, lots of Jewish people who get a great education, Jewish and secular, that's exactly what I think we should stress. That's what we want. We, we believe that you could be a great observant and learned Jew while also studying full, uh, full secular education. One quick point, though. Schneerson, you're talking about the, the Lubavitch Rebbe? Yeah. So he did get a great education. Um, and then later in life, he decided that kids should not get an education. So Lubavitch, although they, they are the most outgoing and approachable people you could find in New York City, I don't know how they manifest here in Arizona. In New York City, you come out of a subway on Sukkos, they ask you if you're Jewish first, and then they're like, okay, here, shake the lulav and the esrog, um, stuff like that. Um, so, so in Lubavitch, so yeah, even though they're the most outgoing and everything, um, there are two main yeshivas in Crown Heights, again, a neighborhood in New York, for those who don't know. And the, main, the larger of the two is called the Holy Torah. That is often nicknamed the Rebbe's yeshiva. They're the ones that provide zero secular education, even in elementary school. The only benefit they, the graduates of, those yeshivas, of that yeshiva have is that they actually speak English as a first language. Most Lubavitches speak English as a first language, so it gives them a huge advantage um, as adults, because at least they can communicate. They're not going to sound like a, like a fool you know, trying to, to string together a sentence. But um, unfortunately, with regards to secular education, they're actually all the way at the bottom. There was an article recently in the New York Times that said part of the reason that the law, New York government, doesn't come down on this is because they get out the vote. These yeshivas get out the vote. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the, the people that could insist, I mean, it's a, it's a school. There is laws that say they must have an education. They ignore it because of that. Is that true? Absolutely, I, I, I think so. See, no one knows, but um, meaning to know, we would need to go into Mayor de Blasio, he's the mayor of New York City, into his emails and to his personal conversations to know if you know, he's deliberating whether to do it or not based on that. But that's obviously the sense we're getting, and here's why. Mayor de Blasio, for example, is a progressive. He's great on almost every single issue, right? Um, so when it comes to this, for some reason, he's, he's nowhere to be found. And, and everyone's like, what? He, they've been investigating this for two and a half years now. And they've been promising to produce a report over and over again. And it's terrible PR for him. Because again, the secular media has been pretty much on our side. And, and it's not a good look. Before his reelection, they were hammering away at, it, at him for this. And he just didn't care. And my view is because the tremendous amount of votes that he's getting as a result outweighs the negative PR, which is bad, but not nearly as bad as losing that tremendous amount. Are voting for him? Oh, yes. Yeah. You know, before he ran, when he ran the first time, they had a, um, a forum, a candidate forum. And um, the main topic back then was Matitza Bapet. Do you guys know what that is? Some, some of you know. Should I ask them to explain, just to, put, to make them awkward? <laughs> I was kidding. But if you want, go for it. Right. So there's certain people that use a separation. 
right. ballast of the baby and have infected um, babies and, right. and cause like psychological or no um, neurological, neurological. Um, uh, damage and death damage. and deaths. Yes, some deaths. So, so, so May Bloomberg, who was right before de Blasio, he said he didn't have much of a spine either when it, comes to, when it came to it, but he said, look, we can, we can require that parents um, write, uh, sign some sort of waiver. I don't remember what that was meant to do. I think it was really just meant to get people to pause for a second and realize, wow, there's a risk of your child getting herpes. Um, so that's all he required was this candidate forum and for mayor in 2012 or 13, and de Blasio was like the strongest. Oh, I'm gonna do away with it. Like, he knew what he had to say, and, and he won, you know? Um, so, so it seems like he, he will do what it takes to maintain that. And now he's in a second term, and people are wondering, you know, in New York City, you can't run for a third term, unless you're Mayor Bloomberg, by the way. Um, it's a different story. And um, so he can't run for a third term, so I was like, great, now he, f he finally doesn't need, because the next thing he wants to do is run for president, right? I, you guys may not know this, but you should. <laughs> but, but yes, yes, oh yeah, he's been like, he's been um, building his national profile, he go visits Ohio and whatever, yeah. But I'm thinking, hey, you don't need a few thousand Hasidic votes in New York City, no less, to get you elected. But then I heard, oh, his wife wants to run for something local. So there goes everything. So unfortunately, I, I don't know if he'll have the courage soon. So a, a lot of guys that have left the polls have like gone totally off the dash, mm -hmm. right? They've kind of thrown out the baby with the bathwater. How has your experience like exposing these dark crevices Um, not going to get into too much detail, but myself, um, I've had a journey though. I, um, I'm, I've, I'm out of the Hasidic community. I guess that's the elephant in the room, right? Um, I grew up Hasidic. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, so I did leave the, the community. <laughs> not going to tell you about that either, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> But basically, when I first left, I, I, was pretty, um, I was pretty upset, and I didn't want anything to do with it, to be honest. Um, and, then, and then I began, I remember visiting for the first time a, um, I think it was a reform, reform shul or a conservative shul. You'll correct me, but hey, I grew up with none of this, okay? It was all like as good as a church, so forgive me. But basically, <laughs> I went to this... Um, shul on, on Sukkot, uh, Simchat Torah, and there were women touching the Sefer Torah. I'm like, ah, that's, is there any, any denomination of Judaism that allows that? It was just so, so foreign to me. And so, but it was also uh, kind of like nice suddenly, you know, I was like, whoa, there are all these people who we always used to know are as good as Goyim are actually Jews. They're so happy and so proud and like, Women are practically fighting to, to, to hold the Sefer Torah. I'm like, I just gave this up, you know? So it was like very interesting. And, and so, so now I'm like, you know, out for a while and, and I could have a whole different kind of appreciation for Judaism in general. You know, it's funny, this is not so much related, but I'm in the social justice world. I've been in some fellowships with, let's say, the UJA Federation. Are you familiar with them? Um, and they talked about tikkun olam. I'm like, 
Oh, and I mentioned something. When I grew up, we didn't talk about tikkun olam. They were like, what? Like, it sounds like such a Hebrew thing that, that, you know, Orthodox Jews would be talking about the most. There's one Hasidic sect, Breslov, mostly in, in Tzfat, in Israel, who, who talk about it. They have these books, and they go around giving them for free, a whole different thing. But the point is, we didn't even grow up with that. So, um, but it's, it's beautiful when I'm like surrounded by all these Jews who don't speak more than those two words of Hebrew, but that's their mission in life. It's just so different. So, so I appreciate those things, and, and I, I very much um, you know, love the Jewish um, religion or uh, culture. Um, so that's where I am. I should try one other person. Oh, I forgot that again. I did it again. Yes, yes. Okay. Very important issue, and I'm glad you, you asked, because otherwise I've had, well, this happens more on Facebook, where like people are like, oh, once again, another Orthodox Jewish group that doesn't care about the girls. They keep talking about the boys, boys. Anyway, here's the issue. With Hasidic, Hasidic girls tend to get a much better secular education. Um, and, and if you understand why Hasidic boys don't get a proper secular education, you can understand why the girls do get. So why do Hasidic boys not get a basic education? It's because every single person is, is expected to grow up a rabbi. That would be the ultimate goal, right? It's like, so, so my example that I often use is, let's say you live in a community somewhere where every parent over there has already determined what their child is going to grow up, a lawyer, right? So they have a school, they send their kids to school, and you can imagine from first grade, they'll begin teaching them some stuff related to law. Why not? I mean, start early, right? In this community, every single child is destined and would preferably be, become a, a, a rabbi. So that's what they're beginning from early on. The rest of the stuff is not important. Yeah, we, 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 have, to, we have to comply a little bit with the law and give a little bit of English and math. We'll, we'll do the 90 minutes. That's not important. Girls can't become rabbis in that community. Um, they're not allowed to study Talmud, which is what boys spend almost their entire day studying. They're not allowed to study Talmud. So they have the time and the, the need to go and to get a proper education so someone can provide for the family while the husband is still deciding whether he will become a rabbi or if ultimately he'll be like the 95% who don't end up becoming rabbis. So, they, so when, when young couples, um, the wife, the husband continues studying Jewish studies in like Kolel, it's like a yeshiva or rabbinical college, and the wife uh, tends to go out and gets a job, entry-level position, bookkeeping, that kind of stuff, then begins having kids, kids, you know, lots of kids, um, and eventually the husband at that point can decide whether he's cut out to become a rabbi or face the reality that he's not, and then they kind of switch. You know, the wife becomes a housewife most of the time, and the husband um, goes out to work. And that's where a major struggle begins. So the short answer, yes, girls tend to get a much better education. They, spend, they tend to, spend, to split their day more evenly, half Jewish and half secular. By the way, my family, I talked about my 16 siblings, or being one of 17, Oh, she missed it, so you had to see that reaction. I'm the, I'm the middle child of 17 kids. 
so um, my first, my oldest seven siblings are boys, okay? So there's a saying that my mother goes straight to, to Gan Eden. Have you heard that, like to, to heaven? Um, and then, then there's a girl, me, and then four girls. I grew up more with the girls portion of my family. And um, so they would come home, sing songs, you know, about the 50 states or the names of the presidents, the capitals of the country, all these things. So, so they, they really did learn these things. They learned English, math, science, social studies. They even learned sewing. Maybe not so much anymore, but my, when I was younger, my sisters were learning. They were learning keyboarding, you know, typing. So they learned some of the practical stuff that, that um, we couldn't. By the way, funny story. When I got into college, I had to take remedial English. Um, and I took, I took a very early course like that. Um, it was eight credits, but didn't count towards my degree. So it was eight credits in terms of the amount of time I was putting in, but zero credits towards my bachelor's degree. Anyway, I was learning for the first time about contractions. You know what that means? Like are and are not and so forth. Anyway, and I'm, I'm good at extrapolating things, OK? So I learned about um, are and are not, or can and cannot, can't, whatever, and so forth. So I come home, and I'm trying to apply it to real life, right? And I'm there, surrounded by my sisters. Um, I'm 20 at this point. Yeah, 20 years old. Surrounded by my sisters, and I'm like speaking English fluently, OK? And I'm like, I am not and I. <laughs> And that's exactly what they did. They all burst out laughing, and it was, it was quite funny and embarrassing for me. But, um, you know, that's, you know, I think Hasidic kids are, are bright. So we can extrapolate, but sometimes in the wrong way because we just didn't learn it. Anyway, totally veered off. I think the rabbi had a so, question. So, um, well, I'm 100% with you. Oh, okay. Not 99%, 100%. <laughs> um, I just want to put up a small counter argument just to see how you respond to it, which is that. Uh, uh, Virtually all of American Jews, with the exception of the ultra-Orthodox, uh, are assimilated. And the ultra-Orthodox are the success story, although there's, there's a large attrition as well, of, of a growing population. And it, it's undoubtedly true that with secular education, uh, that will change that. Because they are right. Uh, that actually secular education will influence, will influence them. Um, they will come to respect non-Orthodox Jews, non-Hasidic Jews, they'll come to respect Gentiles more, they'll come to engage more in spheres that they don't engage in now. And inevitably, um, that will loosen their fervent commitment to the Orthodox Hasidic circular attachments. So I, I think that, while, that, um, that, that, that the, the argument that it will, it will affect their community is true. Uh, and so, so I wonder how you how you respond to that, knowing that that their that their concern is actually true. Right. That's that's a that's a great question. Wow. I'm surprised that with all of that, you're still 100% supportive. <laughs> anyway, a few thoughts. First of all, I'm like, oh my God, that would be terrible if they're tolerant of goyim and non-orthodox Jews. But yes, I, I hear the point is basically that there will be some some attrition. You have to realize there's actually a counterpoint to that. And I know this because I once met with um, one of the heads of Agudath Israel. Again, an organization, New York. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar. OK. His name is um, Rabbi David Zwiebel, or Chaim David Zwiebel. Anyway, and um, I was, I was um, presenting that argument. Not the argument. I was saying, you know, I get it, but still. You... And he said, no, no, no. There's the counter argument where people are leaving because they're upset that they didn't get an education. 
he was saying that, that the OTD, the off the derech phenomenon, may have something to do with the fact that a lot of people are upset, they feel betrayed, they feel like um, they've been robbed of something, and they're like, now I have to go and find it elsewhere. So that is also true. But let's assume that there are more people who would leave from getting an education than those who leave for not getting an education, right? Um, and I think that might actually be the case. Um, I, I also think that there's a happy medium. Um, think about the Litvish community, right? Ultra-Orthodox, but not Hasidic. Um, they, they provide, a, at least until recently, unfortunately, it's going a little bit downhill, but until recently, they provided a pretty solid secular education, both for boys and, and girls. And um, I don't think they have a lot of people leaving the community. In fact, I think they have fewer people going off the derech. So I don't know if, if it's true. I mean, obviously, if some, someone comes and begins forcing yeshivas to teach about evolution, that might have some, some effect. But I don't think that's not where we're heading, by the way. We're just talking about the basics, just so that people can go out there and, and get along with people, understand each other, um, as well as uh, earning a living and, um, or, or pursuing a degree. So my point is, you know, to sum it up, I think there's a happy medium that we can um, strike um, where there will be better education, better income, and uh, not an increase in attrition. How are they getting away with there not being any government oversight? Like, are there inspections? So, like, how are there, how are there not inspections? How is, is that they're getting around the law, or the law really states that they can get funds and have nobody come in and they have no books? Like, how, like, how is it actually even possible? Okay, yeah, so in New York State, it's very strange. They have, like, four different levels of being a, a, a school. The first one is really nothing. You just, have, you just have kids in a room, and you consider yourself a school. They just urge you to re not register with them, to get what they call a BEDS code. It's like a basic educational something something. Um, and that means that then you can get funding. So there's really nothing you need to do. By the way, funding, because it's a religious school and there's a separation of church and state, so it's not like funding, here's money for your school. It's funding for certain programs, like I mentioned before. Um, um, lunch, for example, is one. There's also books, um, busing, so transportation, um, attendance. Here's another loophole to fund religious schools. The, the state requires you to take attendance because you have to be in school for 180 days, so they require you to take attendance, and therefore they must cover the attendance taking. Again, it's just a, there are many of these loopholes to fund um, religious schools, which would be, like I said, would be unconstitutional. But like so, books, like are they funding them for books? And then they, they fund them for books. So, so, actually, so actually some of them do buy secular books, and then there are some, some scams going on where they bill for secular books, but they don't get the secular books. Yes, the, the point is there's very little oversight, very little strings attached. And we mentioned before the reason why has to do a lot with the black vote. Um, but also, if you think about it, go back three, four decades. Even the Orthodox, even the Hasidic community provided a better education. But back then, when the concept of private religious schools came up, which actually had existed before the public schools started, but when the state, let's say, passed these laws, right, that you need to be substantially equivalent to public schools, it was really just a formality. Because they were thinking to themselves, which, which private school do we need to tell that they should provide an education substantially equivalent? Generally speaking, they provide a much better education, right? So, 
it doesn't occur to, occur to people that, oh, there are some private schools that provide almost no education or no education at all. Uh, and I think by the time that happened, the Hasidic community was so big that it was like, okay, we're not going to touch this thing with a 10-foot pole. And then we came along. Um, and since we came along, um, the city has been conducting um, inspections. Where, where we find the, the process problematic because they're giving them, announce, they're announcing beforehand. And as I mentioned before, when as children, when the inspect inspectors would come, the yeshivas would be given um, um, advance notice and everything would look very, very differently. So we worry and we know from some parents whose kids go there that the yeshivas do look very differently on the days that the inspectors come. We're just hoping that, that first of all, a, 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 a trained inspector would know for things to look. Just a funny story. You remember that yeshiva I was mentioning before that Hasidic leaders are using as a PR stunt? So it's funny. So they've been posting these pictures of, of these senators visiting, visiting this yeshiva. And, and this Hasidic guy who's harassing me um, tagged, how do you do, tag or at a different senator, a New York senator or assemblywoman who's been outspoken against it. And was like, hey, look, you see, um, we're, we're providing proper education. You should also visit this yeshiva. She goes, oh, oh yeah, I, I, I particularly love the, the locks on the, on, the book, on the bookcase over there. And I'm like, I took the picture again. I'm like, whoa, how did she notice that? But the point is, yeah, there are all these books, and it's all you know, under lock and key. Basically, the point is that there's a lot of shenanigans, and hopefully that a trained um, um, inspector could see through all of that and, and at least... Like speak to any of the children? And exactly, like exactly. Their... So in the videos, in the PR videos, they always have the best English-speaking kid. Yeah. Um, and, and, and again, and they go to these yeshivas that are already kind of on the better end of the spectrum. Um, again, I'm hoping that the inspectors do. We don't get invited to these things. Right. You see, we're this outside group um, that doesn't get included in it, so, so we can't verify. Obviously, if I were to go there, it would be a whole different ballgame because I would know what to look for. I speak Yiddish, so all those things that they say behind the backs of the inspectors, oh, make sure they don't see this, make sure they don't see that, I would get that. Um, in fact, there is, in, you know, um, in, in Toronto or somewhere, there was this sect. It was called um, Left Tahar, basically like a real uh, cult, a Hasidic cult, Hasidic group that turned into a cult. And, um, and the government was applying a lot of pressure on them so, and, and at some point, the media, um, like, like let's say their CBS, went to visit the yeshiva. And, and the, the community, they were, they were afraid of being expelled. And ultimately, they were expelled. Um, but they were afraid of being expelled, so they were also putting up a whole PR stunt. And they invited the media. And you actually, so the, the, the reporter is asking children questions. And of course, again, they tried using the best kid, but the reporter did ask others. And you hear, most, the reporter probably didn't hear it. I did. The, the rabbi is giving away the answers to the boy right then and there in Yiddish. So, I mean, and even then, the kids didn't get it. It was so bad. But, but, but yes, that's, that's a big problem. I, look, I, I don't know. That's my, my concern. And for, for years, we've been saying the inspections must be unannounced if you really want to get to the bottom of it. But they're saying that the, the law doesn't, simply doesn't allow them. It has to be in coordination with them. So, sorry. Wow, it's a, 
it's very hard for me to answer because luckily I'm not one. Of, I'm not a criminal like that. I don't do that. But I think. I think you have to, Talmud. Are you? Do you, do you, did you study Talmud? There's a whole debate in the Talmud whether you're allowed to steal from a Gentile. The Talmud concludes that you're not allowed to, but you're allowed. But you're allowed. I don't know if you're allowed to trick them. But if they made a mistake, then you could keep the money, stuff like that. Are you allowed to trick them, or is it only toe, Like, yeah, yeah. If, there's a, if there's a mistake, you don't have to correct it. You don't have to correct it. So, right. Well, here's the thing. A lot of Hasidic people are not the best students in yeshiva, so they forget that part where you're not allowed to steal from a guy. They remember the argument. So imagine, if there's even a debate if you're allowed to steal from a guy, you're probably allowed to steal from a guy, right? That's what they, they go away believing, and, and ultimately it's just, honestly, this is what I've been, that I grew up with my entire life, which is, it's just a guy. And, and when you're stealing from the government, it's even better, because you're not, you're, you're stealing from the government who would give the money to a guy. So, you know, and, and there's, oftentimes, <clears throat> it has to do with racism too, they'll be like, well, if you don't take the, the food stamps, then it'll just go to another black guy. Like, these are things that are said. I can't have a conversation with some, some Hasidic uh, family members 10 minutes in, and there wouldn't be something derogatory like that. So, so they believe that, look, we're doing the best thing on earth. You know how, you know, in Israel, for example, Hasidic Jews, um, and also in general, ultra-Orthodox Jews refuse to go to the army, right? Refuse to join the army. And um, why they believe, and, and there's a member of the Knesset who said this on air, that we believe that, that the Torah is what keeps the country uh, going. It's not the military. You know, that's just, God makes it look that way. You know what I mean? But it's really us studying the Torah. So if you go around with that belief, right, that literally, do you know there's a day of the year, the day that um, Jesus was born, I think, or the day he died? I don't remember because my education. <laughs> that... Is it, is it, it's called nittel, which means, base, I don't know what it means. I know what we're not allowed to do. We're not allowed to study Torah. It might be Christmas, by the way. It's like Christmas Eve. Okay. We weren't allowed to study Torah. And they would always say that we're so lucky that there's always, that, that the time zones are so different, that, that there's always someone studying Torah. Because if nittel was across the world at the same exact moment, the world would collapse. So I'm serious now. I know I'm, I'm trying to be a little funny about it because it's serious discussions. But if you really go around believing this your entire life, what's a few th hundred thousand dollars here and there to, to make all of this happen? So that, I think that's the, the reasoning behind it. But again, I'm not sure. If someone has served in the Israeli army, they might be right. You've <laughs> I see. I'd love to know if that's the case. And if it's just too far off the topic, this topic is too mm -hmm. far off the topic. How did we get here? And by that I mean, let, let's go back to the mid-1700s. Moses Mendelssohn creeps into Berlin, and a few years later, Immanuel Kant, one of the greatest philosophers of all history in the Gentile world, says there's only one philosopher who's my equivalent. Moses Mendelssohn. Uh -huh. Now that indicates that maybe not every Jew 
yeah. was brilliant. But there were pockets of brilliance, and there were maybe more education at a low level than there was in the Gentile world. So how do we get from there to here? Yeah, um, history is not my strongest suit. By the way, my wife, who I think had to go out with a baby, She's actually very interested in that stuff, and she studies this like just as a hab as as a hobby, yeah. and and she just got into a PhD um, program in sociology. So I think she's going to be studying a little bit of that. But um, it's funny, it's interesting because um, I often um, think I took um, in my psychology courses. I had to take um, a history in psychology, and a lot of it came from philosophy, and. When I read it, I'm like, whoa, this sounds a lot like the Hasidic studies that I learned, um, Hasidism, you know, as a kid. And I realized that back then, this was just the current knowledge. It was where they were at. And to some extent, we just decided we're staying there. We're never, ever moving forward. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, I think in general, it's really just because of the, the um, population growth, kind of like what Shmuley mentioned. Just quickly, what, what Shmuley mentioned is, um, you know, other denominations are, are um, either intermarrying and stuff or, or have so few children that it's not catching up. But the Hasidic community is the fastest growing, and this is their way of life. So ultimately, that's what we're going to look like. Go ahead. Just in addition to everything you said, I do think that we should balance our Gabura with our Chesed, our, our strength in the activism with a little bit of a gentle approach as well, yes. have some rough have a little bit of rough knowledge for the community, a little bit of mercy, in the sense that shouldn't let up our fight on this, but in the sense of understanding that we can't underestimate the power of a history of persecution right. and the Shoah, the Holocaust, and what that has done to make things. And the victim mentality in Walter Mitz community, how would you agree, is stronger than anywhere else in the Jewish community, which is both has historical veracity and is self-perpetuating. And so I think that while there is uh, some ill intent, some ill intent and some uh, some ignorant moves happening, I think that some level Rahmana says that there's also a deep culture and psych psychology of victimhood involved that enables the, the wall to be built higher. I'm curious if you agree with that as well. Yeah, um, I absolutely do. And in fact, there was one point that I should make that I don't know if I stressed it enough in this specific talk, which is that I, and I do this more when I speak not to, to Jewish people, um, is to differentiate between the system and the individual. That part I actually think is super important because Hasidic people really are some of the nicest people. I use this example, tell me if it's good or not, it could be horrendous, okay? So I use this example, like imagine, uh, imagine if a screwdriver like if a teddy bear gets caught in a screwdriver, okay, a screwdriver, and it's not like spinning violently and, and knocking things down and breaking things and causing a lot of damage. It's kind, to me, that's like a Hasidic person is the most innocent, you know, teddy bear. I mean, they're, they're nice. Um, you know, I worked for a Hasidic guy. He was so nice. Um, but, but really, for the most part, you encounter Hasidic people, they're so nice. It's really the system that's just spinning that they, them, they themselves ha can't help themselves. It's just doing it for them. A as you can see, many of them, in fact, 
Most, most Hasidic people will tell you that the majority of the community wants to see improvements in the education system. And by that, I also have to clarify, there are different levels of improvement. Some want to see more hours. Some want to see more subjects. Some just want the 90 minutes to be taken more seriously. Some you know, just want better teachers. Everyone has a different understanding. But the majority wants to see some improvement. And you see they can't do it for themselves because they're just caught in the system. And, and you'll ask yourself, why do parents want a moil that could possibly have herpes? They don't. No one wants their kid to die. But if you complain, you're not going to get the aliyah, and you're not going to be respected, and you might even lose your job. You know what I mean? It's just, so, so there is, the average, peop, the average person is super nice, and, and it's unfortunately the system that needs some repair. And to be honest, that shouldn't be such a terrible thing, right? We should be able to be self-critical, right? And, I'm, and, and in this room, I'm sure we are. Um, I've seen other Jewish denominations are always kind of like, you know, evaluating what they're doing and so forth. But for some reason, this system refuses it. And interestingly, we're talking about... Right. And it's funny. This, uh, someone told me that one of the fears that people have with, with what we're doing is because just by definition, we're shining a spotlight on something that the underpinnings of it is, as you described, criminal, right? There's a lot of uh, fraud, gov um, government funds being misused. And, and to some people, that's the real concern, that if, if there's going to be a spotlight on that, then it could lead to people being, um... <laughs> well, that's, that's a concern, that some people would go to jail, exactly. But anyway, my time is up. This is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.